Hello and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances and I work for The Reader and I'm very pleased to be back bringing you a new series. This will be a series of intimate conversations with authors and colleagues about books and reading but we'll also be speaking about the problems we're facing in our lives right now and how we can face them together. This episode will consist of two conversations with the reader's patron, the author and screenwriter, Frank Cottrell-Boyce. The first conversation you're going to hear took place in June this year, after Frank had completed his first post-pandemic tour of schools around the UK, promoting his latest novel, Noah's Gold. The reader's founder, Jane Davis, rang Frank to find out more about what he had noticed during this tour. Hi, Frank. Uh, good to have you here. And you're going to talk to us about your UK schools tour, where you've been and what you've seen and what you're thinking. I've been everywhere, like from Southampton to Hexham to the borders, a lot on Merseyside, of course, uh, quite a few in London. Um, what do you see? It's the same every time that there's no that schools are very, very different from each other and that it's not always about money. It's it's always about leadership, which is a cheering thing and also kind of terrible thing. And as an author visit, like we, we, I argue with Danny about this a lot, that like you're getting, you are getting a distorted picture of the school, but it's, well, you know, your shaving mirror is a distorting picture, but it helps you see something you need to see. Mm. I've been to rural schools in Yorkshire where they had a little brass band out waiting to greet me. And I've also been in, you know, uh, you know, kids with hats with flowers in their hair as though you were, you know, the mayor. I've been to schools where you walk in and it's like Beatlemania because the kids are so hyped to your visit. I've also been to schools where you're kind of detained in reception while they check your driving license and... It takes half an hour to find someone to come and escort you in case you turn out to be Hannibal Lecter. I've had schools, mm-hmm. you know, I went from a school in Carlisle where it was was Beatlemania, it was amazing, to a school a few hundred yards away where, you know, I was mm-hmm. left to entertain 300-odd kids while their teachers sat at the back of the hall and talked to each other, it, you know, so loudly that I was within seconds of sending them out you know <laughs> I do a tour like that maybe once a year and it's like it's very limited like compared to other writers some writers tour for months on end but this is obviously the first tour since the pandemic I have been to schools locally since the pandemic but there's schools that have specifically asked me in so you get a particular thing you know but this is a sort of selling books so this is like a proper snapshot of how things are and it's the first since the pandemic. Mm. And I, everything's changed. Everything has mm. changed. And it's quite hard to tabulate what I mean by that, but it is a very, very different experience. You said at the beginning, leadership is the thing that makes the real difference and that that was cheering. Can you say a bit more about that? Well, just if you get good people <laughs> in the right place, you can make a huge difference, which is, you know, that is a cheering thought, isn't it? It's not really about, I've been to schools that, I mean, I was in school in Cambridge at the end of last week, it looked like Netflix head office, you know, or, or a Scandinavian airport, absolutely state-of-the-art 
you know, breakout rooms and comfy chairs and fabulously comfortable reading environments. And if you went to that school, you would be perfectly comfortable transitioning to Google. Mm. You know, whereas yeah, I've also been to schools where architecturally they look a bit like strange ways. <laughs> but that school that looks like strange ways can can be a brilliant school if it's got the right leadership in. Yeah, so I've been talking a bit about the fact that we're not having a conversation about what the pandemic has done to children. The only conversation is catch-up. And whenever I say that, people start segue instantly into moaning about the government, but it isn't just the government that's not having this conversation, and it isn't just the government that can change things. So the conversation you'd like to have is, if if I'm hearing a right, is what's happened to children during the yeah. pandemic? yeah. Pre the tour, I was thinking about, well, what's different? Because you're a writer and there are certain tropes that um, that are fixed in children's fiction, you know, um, and, and, and in YA fiction as well, certain tropes about the kind of emotional geography that we all live in. So, for instance, n- none of that generation has had a prom or a leaving do or any of those things that are very bonding, very sort of cementing, great big punctuation marks in your life which are the natural hooks to hang a movie on or a story on. They, they haven't had mm. them, you know? And that, I mean, that seems like a trivial thought, but it's big, you know, it's like, it's big mm. for them. These are big gaps. But then going around primary schools this last six weeks, if you're six and you've had a two-year disruption, that's, that's not a disruption, that's your normal. You know, mm. that's a third of your life. These are huge, huge, huge changes. And we're not we're not talking about them. The only conversation nationally is catch up. I, I think like the most obvious one, and it's huge, is that the pandemic has been an accelerator of a vast change that we've kind of never discussed, which is the digital yeah. world. You know, that the kids are now have become so dependent because they were schooled through screens. That their screen, that their commitment to and their relationship with screens has really, really, really intensified, um, and in some ways, thank God, because how unbearable would the last few years have been without Zoom, and what kind of relationship would we have had with education without the digital world? But I, I think I th- one thing that no one I hear discusses at all, and I don't know why and I think writers should be talking about it a lot, is that if you're on screen working, loads of these kids have their TikTok or their Facebook or whatever open while they're working. So they're never really working, but they're also never really recreating themselves. That gap between work and pleasure, it has melted. So they will go up and do some work and it will take three hours when it should have taken an hour and a half. And they'll come down and go, God, I've been on this for three hours. And you're like, well, and now you feel weary and depleted because you haven't, you haven't noticed that you were also having fun, you know? So you need to stop yeah. work and then have fun. And that's gone. Should I tell you the change that I noticed instantly? And, and this is not a bad thing at all, you know, but just made me think, oh, the world is different. Because I'm not at all saying, oh, everything's crap now, you know? I, I just think, I stepped into those primary schools at the beginning of this tour and thought, this is very different. 
you know, what, what are the differences? So I go into a primary school normally and I do a reading and I have funny bits of stories and I make them laugh and da, 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 and all that. Uh, and then they, I stop and let them ask questions. And those questions in the past have invariably been prepared, you know, and they are, how many books have you written? Why did you become a writer? Blah, blah, blah. Cheeky kid going, what do you earn? All that stuff. Yeah. And this time, I, the, the sort of big passage that I was reading out was about a shark. And all the questions, I mean, all of the questions were about a shark. They were completely engaged in the content. They weren't treating this as like an author visit where we discuss the author. It was, they were completely engaged in the content of the book. My thing is everything has changed. And I think if everything has changed, some things will change for the better, some things will change for the worst. There is a moment here when we've disrupt, we've had this, if you like, a thought experiment, like what would it look like if kids didn't go to school? Mm. Um, is, is that different? Are there, are there gains as well as losses? Nobody's asking either question. Mm. And the, all I was saying about the shark thing was it really struck me that things were different. Not, not, not worse, not better, just this is very different. This is a very different atmosphere. They were very, very engaged with what was immediately in front of them. And, and it was, and it, for me, that was lovely. You know, I felt flattered by it, if anything. But it was definitely, definitely different. So I started to ask about what other differences there were. And the, you know, the huge one is their relationship with screens is completely different. That they, they have learned real dependence on them, but also mm-hmm. real fluidity with them. The IT skills are through the roof comparison to what they used to be, according, mm-hmm. you know, according to teachers. So a thing that's worth recording is that I just put on my Twitter feed, um, I, I put, I've been to a lot of schools recently, I get the impression that the pandemic has changed children in ways, some cheering, some worrying, that we are not talking about. If you have a teacher and you have a thought on this, I'd be really interested to hear. That was last night, and there's been like hundreds of responses. That, I mean, the thread is very, very long, but also I've had... And this is interesting. A lot of teachers um, asking, can they DM me? Because they don't want to say things out loud. There are things that happened in the pandemic that were that I hadn't kind of appreciated on a practical level. That, you know, just by definition, lots of schools were short-staffed because teachers were off with COVID. Um, that lots of schools were having to deal with emotional disturbance because guess what? Hundreds of thousands of people died, you know? <laughs> So a lot, of, like a lot more kids than usual, had lost grandparents or parents. Yeah. You know? yeah. So all those things that we're not talking about. So there's a mental health thing. There was all that. Um, a total disconnect from nature, forgetting how yeah. to sing in chorus. Mm-hmm. Massive joy from the smallest pleasures. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Can I take yeah, one step back and just have like two big headlines? One is. It's definitely, definitely accelerated inequality. Some kids were sitting, like my kids, in you know rooms that PG Woodhouse would have been comfortable in with fabulous Wi-Fi and endless resources. And some kids were doing this on their phones using data yeah. that they didn't get per month. That's a huge thing. Um, there was something else there that was obvious. Oh, you know, that other thing of like a lot of kids had been at school all the way through and felt that, you know, the, the rest of the class, come, you know, essential workers' kids, the rest of the kids coming back was a real intrusion. 
And I do a routine where I ask kids about their first day at primary on the grounds that, like, as a storyteller, that's one of those moments in your life, you know? Of course, mm. they're all mm. very, very different. There isn't a kind of joint experience of first day of anything, you know? So all these kind of shared points in your life, which stories focus on, and which are how we define ourselves, they're all very kind of up in but, the air uh, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the odd thing is all the shared points are, are, if you like, separate. So everybody had the experience of not going to school, but everybody had it separately. Yes. Um, yeah. That may be a thing that writers could take on. I mean, I think those speaking to, to children generally through fiction about that solitary experience, you know, could be a brilliant thing. Um I was thinking about things like my youngest grandchild, Agnes, is um, six. And so she started school during it yeah. or not, you know. And she's a very sociable person and um, had a long period of enforced no no social contact. And we, because we have an allotment, we could meet up there. It was one of those places where you can have six people together out of doors, yeah, yeah. You know, et cetera. And we, so I would meet them as often as possible at the allotment. And then if other allotment holders came along, she would go berserk. She just would not leave them alone. Yeah. There's a human. There's a human. I've got to talk to them. Um, And I wonder if some, you know, loads of kids separately will have had experiences like that, but. Yeah. But we don't have a way of sharing them. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, there will be a. a way of talking about that shared experience but as you say mm. it's not directly shared you know they weren't there mm. to witness each other right yeah. so, so what are we going to do i mean i'm a writer i've got no responsibility for doing something except mm. i've got this snapshot and this good feeling that everything's changed and that therefore mm. this is this should be an opportunity um and a, a, and a visceral sense that there's no point blaming or appealing to the government, mm. given that we mm. have incredibly dysfunctional, inept yeah. and disengaged yeah. government, yeah. Um, yeah. that's not going to happen. You know, that's no. like, so what, you know, what can the, we do, all of us? Kind of create a space where teachers yeah. talk to each other about it. Frank was saying there that all he could do as a writer was to refuse to ignore what children had been through in the last few years and offer a space for teachers and the rest of us to talk about it. But when he came along to the Reader's Gravity Festival, which we held in Liverpool at the start of October this year, Frank spoke further about what he felt he could do as a children's author to help his young readers identify the tools for happiness. Here he is with fellow author Lissa Evans, talking to the head of children and young people at the Reader, Cara. We're joining the conversation as Frank and Lissa were discussing books they had loved as children, in particular the Moomin series by Tova Janssen. Because I think one of the things about children's books that we should talk about is that you read the right things in childhood and they build your resilience and your happy place and they point you towards the small pleasures that get you through difficult times. And the Moomin books 
Tuva Janssen was this upper class bohemian lesbian who obviously had kind of quite a tangential relationship with her own family, but for whom family was very important. And they, their books, they're very dynamic books about family, mm. but, but the family in the movement box is sort of, it, there's a core family, but there's also this sort of elective yes. fact that people who come, yeah. waifs yeah. and strays, who just end up in the house, who are always welcomed, and that house is full of people of a different species and they hibernate. So when I had lots of kids and they were teenagers and they felt like a different species and it seemed like they hibernated <laughs> a lot, I, I thought... You had your blueprint. Yeah, yeah I just used yeah. to think, oh, I'm in the Moomin house here. This is where yeah. I wanted to yeah. be. So the Moomins were formative in more, than, you know, in more ways than one. But I think like a really important kids book will do that to you. It becomes part of your DNA, mm. part of how you see yes. the world. And, we're, you know, our children have just been through this terrible time. And I think one of the gifts of reading the right books, whether it's mm. Uncle or Moomins or whatever it is, is that it helps build the apparatus of happiness. Mm. And as I get older, I realise that, like, yes, literacy is important and numeracy is important and blah, 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 they're all important. Nothing is as important as knowing how to be happy. Yes. And mm. the best children's books are often about how to be happy. Mm. I really don't like unhappy endings. I really, really don't like... I, would, I couldn't write a book which would make a child feel that things are worse than they are, that, that life is unhappy, that there is no possibility of hope. I couldn't do it. For me, it is important that, 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 that there is some uplift in them that, that, for me, is important they're funny. But I, I really don't like it. But that's my personal taste. I didn't like reading books that did that to me as a child. You know, I couldn't forgive an author that killed off an animal or lose the <laughs> animals, you know, among people. But if they killed a dog, never, never would I read another book of theirs. Bambi's you know. mother. <laughs> well, Bambi's mother, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that, I mean, so it's a combination of personal taste. And, but so real feeling, yeah, I don't want to pile stuff on children. I mean, yes, I think it's important to, to have realistic characters, but why make life even worse? more difficult than it is. So that happy ending and coming round to that yeah. happy ending is so important. For me, yeah. I mean, this is not about other people's writing, but I really worry about kind of that taste for misery and dystopia because I think it changes... Well, I think, you know, these are very malleable minds that we're writing for. Mm -hmm. And I think you can normalise bad behaviour. So, like, I think Hunger Games is one of the best books I've ever read. Absolutely amazingly mm -hmm. brilliant book. But if you've been brought up on Hunger Games, you're not as surprised as you should be by President Trump. Because yeah. it's like, oh, they're all like that. You know, you, and you've moved the window a little bit. Do, do you know what I mean? I, yeah. that, I'm not at all saying it's Hunger Games' fault that President Trump was elected or that it's not a brilliant book and I wish I'd written it because I do. But that, I feel that we're playing with like a live chemistry set, live ammunition, and you've got to be careful where you shoot it. And, and also, just going back to me, what I hope I'm doing is helping build the apparatus of happiness. And I don't think I'm going to do that by saying, so we'll kill each other for food. Yeah. Because it's not true apart from anything else. You know, like, um, like, I, like I, it's a great read, but like, I think one of the most stupid books ever written is Lord of the Flies. Mm -hmm. Great, great read. But that's a book about how a certain set of public schoolboys would behave on an island, yeah. not how humanity would behave mm -hmm. on an island. And we know this because of the... Do you know the Tongan schoolboy oh, story? Yeah, Brilliant story. Do you all know this story? 
So, okay, so this is like, there's a group of schoolboys in Tonga, in, and they don't come out well at the beginning of this story, right? They go to a nice school in Tonga. They don't like the school dinners. So instead of bringing Pat lunch or nipping out to Greg's, they decide to steal a boat and sail to Fiji with no sailing experience whatsoever, but they've got a cousin there who says, school dinners are really great. <laughs> <laughs> so they set out and they get washed up on this island called Atta, which is in quite a busy part of the South Pacific, but which in millions of years, no one has ever lived on it. It's, a, it's just, a, it's a volcanic plug and it's like that. And they were washed up there for 18 months wow. and they didn't eat each other and they didn't hunt each other. They just really looked after each other. And they, they learned to fish. Yes. They didn't survive. They they found bamboo. Right. They built this gym, and they they look, all look like Anton Clark. They all <laughs> pumped. Uh, they just pumped, and they they uh, they said prayers every morning and prayers every night. They learned to fish. Uh, they made musical instruments and sang yeah. songs. One of them did get injured. One of them broke his leg, and they made a throne and carried him round and made a game of it. This is like you're the king, so we've got to carry around and you do whatever you talk with. And they were rescued after 18 months by an Australian fishing boat, and then they were arrested for stealing the boat. But that's a real story, you know? Yeah. And Lords of Flies is a made up story, yeah, and we forget, but it has that prestige mm. because it's so blink bloody miserable, and we really, because we live a lovely life by and large, we, we press, we, I think we give. Misery, a prestige that is, it doesn't deserve, and we don't talk enough about why people are good. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there you go. It struck me that that anecdote about the Tongan schoolboys is similar to the national story that Frank has been trying to tell about children emerging from an extraordinary experience and adults entirely missing the point. There's a poem we reprinted in the most recent issue of the Reader magazine, which also seemed to express this. Half Past Two by U. A. Fanthorpe Once upon a school time, he did something very wrong. I forget what it was. And she said he'd done something very wrong and must stay in the schoolroom till half past two. Being cross, she'd forgotten she hadn't taught him time. He was too scared at being wicked to remind her. He knew a lot of time. He knew getting up time, time when you were off time, time to go home now time, TV time, time for my kiss time, that was grand time. All the important times he knew, but not half past two. He knew the clock face, the little eyes, and the two long legs for walking. But he couldn't click its language. So he waited, beyond once upon a, 
out of reach of all the time fours, and knew he'd escaped forever into the smell of old chrysanthemums on her desk, into the silent noise his hangnail made, into the air outside the window, into ever. And then, my goodness, she said, scuttling in, I forgot all about you. Run along or you'll be late. So, she slotted him back into school time and he got home in time for tea time. Next time. No time for that now time. But he never forgot how once, by not knowing time, he escaped into the clockless land forever, where time hides tickless, waiting to be born. As I said, we reprinted that poem in issue 76 of The Reader magazine, which came out last month, and which also features Frank and tells some of the stories of The Reader's work with children and young people over the last 10 years. You can buy that issue and support The Reader by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for more conversation and shared reading. We're very grateful to our brilliant patron Frank Cottrell Boyce and to the estate of UA Fanthorpe. Chris Lynn edited this episode and Humphreys Avery provided the sound and recording from Gravity Festival. Many thanks are due to the Reader's core funders, Arts Council England, the National Lottery Community Fund, the players of the People's Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. Finally, many thanks to you for listening. Till next time, goodbye.